Hey, what's up, everybody? This is going to be a special episode of Untenured Tracks. This is, I think, in the history of the show, uh, one of the interviews that means the most to me, um, me personally. Um, this week, I'm speaking with, I'm so fortunate to be speaking with Cheryl St. Germain, author of uh, the book 50 Miles. 50 Miles is her memoir um, covering her, the death of her son, Gray. Um, so, suffice it to say, um, the biggest of possible content warnings, trigger warnings on this episode. Uh, this is not something that understandably a lot of you might want to cover, um, but I think this is an incredibly important conversation for those of us who uh, live with um, substance abuse disorders, have been affected by substance abuse, um, and the uh, ongoing crisis of, of drugs in American life. This is episode 87 of Untenured Tracks. Well, um, it's it's about um, addiction, really, and recovery. And um, my son died a few years ago of a heroin overdose, and I had struggled with um, with substance abuse myself years earlier. And as a mother, I kept thinking about, you know, why was it that I survived and he did not? And even though there's no answer to that, and the book doesn't really give an answer. Um, you know, a lot of books about addiction are kind of um, how not to get addicted or how to recover. And this is not a how-to book. And it's also not, not a book about, um, you know, just all the horrible things that happened. I think uh, it's, it's more of a reflective book. It's more of a book that sort of um, goes inside of uh, the feelings and emotions and, um, and tries to paint a picture of... Of a, of a really creative and uh, funny and um, difficult boy um, and then what it's like to mother someone like that and um, and then I, I also I wanted to bring in some elements of our culture that I think um, we don't often um, talk about a lot that I think contributed to my son Gray's uh, difficulties and that was his um, uh, diagnosis with attention deficit disorder as a, as a young man and subsequent um, taking of Ritalin and Adderall, which were the first drugs that he abused. And that, there's, a, there's an essay in, in the piece about that. So there, there are some other, other pieces. I, I wanted to talk about video games because my son loved video games and he taught me how to play World of Warcraft, which I still play to this day. And, uh, you know, I... I um, and, and, and our playing of video games was a positive thing. And so there were, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And um, yeah, so, um, so I, guess, I guess also wanted to, to bring a kind of uh, lyricism to this writing. I'm, I, my, <clears throat> most of my work uh, has been poetry and I love the lyric essay. And so a lot of the pieces in this book are what I would call lyric essays, and that's that's a little different too. 
And <clears throat> as far as what did I hope, you know, I really uh, wanted to complicate the notion of what it means to be an addict. And I hope that when people read this book, they have more compassion for people who have substance use issues and, um, and a little bit more understanding and not so much judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just want to commend you for that, right? Because the, the approach to the, to the story and Gray's story, I, I, you know, very frequently when we talk about substance use issues, that's, that's the one thing, the one identifying um, character trait that people want to focus on. It's the, the addictive behavior and then everything else kind of falls by the wayside. But um, in 50 miles, you're, you're really giving us, you know, the totality of, of what Gray was like and what your relationship with him was like. And it's, I mean, obviously the drug use is a, a major part of it, but there's, more to him than that. Yeah, I mean, if you were to look at him, you know, people sometimes have this this idea of what an addict looks like, kind of skinny and hunched over, and like, you know, I, I don't know. It's it, and and he he looked like a fine, upstanding young man. You know, I mean, he was funny and uh, and uh, smart. And I used to say when I was teaching college that he was smarter than some of my PhD friends, you know, and uh, the questions that he asked were really interesting. Sometimes I think, you know, when he was a kid, we'd go into like a video store or something and I'd be focused. We're going to be like getting this video and come. It's all we're going to do. But he would be like looking everywhere. You look at, Oh, look at that person. They're, they're fat. Or look at this person is, this is happening, you know? And I'd say, we're not paying attention to that. We're just going in there to get a video. And, and sometimes I think about that because I think as adults, a lot of us are just trained to ignore all the really horrible stuff. Not that someone's overweight. That was not a great example. But, but you know, there are lo- there's lots of really bad stuff out there that we don't pay attention to because we just want to live our lives and we want to be happy. And I think there are some people in the world, and my son was one of them, who just can't ignore that stuff. You know, if somebody's a hypocrite or the government is doing this instead of that, and, and um, how, can you, how can you do this when you're, you know. So all the compromises that we make as adults, I think some people, even as adults, don't know how to make those compromises. And mm-hmm. at least for my son, one way of dealing with all the horrible stuff he saw in the world and the pain was, was to, to take uh, stuff that would make him not feel that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's this idea in urban sociology. Um, when you ask like, why is it that people who live in places like New York city seem to be so hard and uncaring? The explanation is that it's a defense mechanism because of like sensory overload. Um, and I, I kind of, as you were talking, I, I kind of started to wonder if maybe like the internet has, has just made that uh, no longer just an urban phenomenon, but just a, a societal thing where we're, we are blasted by all kinds of information and overwhelming and, and gory and heartbreaking stuff every day that, that maybe there's something there, right? And, and that idea of not being able to turn it off, I think speaks to a lot of people's problems and, and suffering that they're going through. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, we, I, I mentioned this in, my, in the book in the beginning that um, I come from a family of, of, it's just cursed with substance abuse. My father died of cirrhosis, my two brothers, one of them died of a drug overdose and one died of a heart attack related to drug abuse. And um, we have lots more 
I won't even mention because some of them are living in the family and, you know, and I've struggled as well. And, and when I think about why I drank so much or um, experimented as much as I did with drugs, um, some of it was, was, I think, the experimenting with drugs was, was not unhealthy when I was younger. I think a lot of people do that. And the truth is most people who do drugs don't get addicted. Um, but we hear about the, the people who do. But I think the drinking for me, which was, was the real problem, was, uh, was absolutely, uh, I'd come home from work and I had a miserable day and, you know, I couldn't, I was running a program and I couldn't tell somebody what I really thought of them. And so why not have a bottle of wine, you know, to forget about it. And I haven't had a drink in 13 years, but, um, but every day, when it's, especially this last year, well, last five years, really, you know, watching the television, seeing the things that are happening, the, the horrible things that we're capable of as humans, um, not just the political stuff, just some of the stuff we do as a government. It's really a hard to live sober in uh, knowing all of that stuff. And then on top of, of it, if you're someone who has um, a difficult personal life, you know, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not easy, you know. There are... Um, I don't have the figures on the on on the tip of my tongue right now, but um, but something like uh, there's something like maybe fifty percent more people have uh, um, overdosed this year uh, than than last year, and uh, there's I, I, don't quote me on that. I mean, whoever's listening to this, but you can look it up. Uh, uh, you can Google it, and it's an astonishing amount of people who who lost their contacts, who were maybe in recovery or, you know, they were going to these meetings and because of COVID they couldn't go. And so it's a kind of a almost hidden problem right now. Um, people are so worried about COVID, but, but there are a number of really vulnerable people who are, who are really struggling um, with addiction and it's gotten worse in COVID. Yeah. So I, I have, about four and a half years alcohol free so i'm i am very hopeful that i can one day get to 13 um that is that is incredible i, I tell people that it's like that being sober in 2020 and 2021 is like having a superpower <laughs> that, yeah. and it's funny you know i mean every i don't i think about drinking all the time you know i don't i have a very full life i i you know writer i do fiber art i mean i work I work constantly, even though I'm retired, I'm doing creative work, but there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about having a drink. And, you know, my husband drinks. Um, and uh, honestly, sometimes I think the reason I don't is because then I would lose my 13 years, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a little competitive, you know, so I'm like, Oh wait, no, I'll just wait another day, you know? And, uh, but yeah, it's, and it's, it changes your life. I'm sure you, you know, this, you can't, you know, you don't enjoy parties as much. You don't enjoy being around people who are drunk. You know, I've been trying to watch a program with my husband, Rebus. It's an old uh, sort of Scottish uh, film. It's sort of, detective show but the guy the main character is a drunk and he drinks mm -hmm. all the time he's a really good um actor and the show is, is kind of interesting but I, every day i'm saying to my husband i really don't like that he drinks so much you know i mean so that it, it changes it changes so much uh, when you no longer have that ability to just i don't know get out of yourself for for a little while you know but 
Yep. I have to say my life is so much better now. Um, I have never been as, um, I don't know if happy is the right word, but content and pleased and, um, you know, with my life, but it's, it's a different life, you know? Mm-hmm. So Yeah. For me, like the first thing I realized was how much advertising there is. Like I, I mean, I like to drive, you know, um, and living in Northeastern Pennsylvania, um, we, we have to drive to get anywhere to do anything. Um, but just the sheer number of billboards for, for all kinds of different alcohol. I, I, w- I was always aware of it, but never painfully aware of it yeah. until I could, until I, yeah. until I quit. Uh, and it's just, just the, the degree to which we are inundated with like advertising, but also pro alcohol messaging. Um, yeah. in, in so many different aspects of our culture is, is shocking. And yeah. it, it's no yeah. wonder why alcoholism is such a major problem. Yeah. Yeah. And programs, you know, just movies, uh, you know, it seems like, well, if, and, and I think a lot of people drink, I'm certainly, I, I'm a little bit of an introvert actually in some ways and drinking made it easier to be with people and listen to their, not very interesting story. I'm not a very good chatter upper. I'm really good at talking about serious stuff one-on-one. Yes. But at parties where you're supposed to, and especially as a writer, you have readings and you go and you're supposed to chat and go be with people and everything. That was miserable for me. I mean, miserable. I would go home and I would feel like I was having, I don't know, like, I don't know, some kind of um, uh, overload uh, you know, and, and just from being with people, yeah. I mean, I like people, don't get me wrong, but, but I don't like these little um, soiree type things, and especially <laughs> when you're not drinking, you know, I had, I was for a while, I was on the executive board at AWP, the Associated Writing Programs, and as a part of that, for the conference, we had to do, um, you know, we had to go to wine events, and we had to go to just all kinds of receptions, and I remember that, a few months after my son died, I'm there and I have my little badge on AWP, Cheryl St. Germain. I'm not drinking, but um, everybody else is. And they, they want to talk to me about all kinds of stuff they think I can do for them. And I'm in my head. All I want to do is say my son is dead, you know, and um, it just brought home how I didn't belong there anymore. And I, I after that, I, I just told them I was very sorry, but I couldn't continue in this role anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So could we talk a little bit about the title of the book and, and where, you, um, where you got that from? Yeah, 50 Miles is the title. And so um, when I was my son, uh, well, I was in my 20s. I was a senior in college. I was in Hammond, Louisiana, and I was uh, shooting up cocaine with a boyfriend who had turned me on to that. And um, it was... Uh, I don't know what, honestly what would have happened to me had he not broken up to me with me and I lost my source of drugs and all of that. But, but um, I, I had a friend who lived 50 miles away in Baton Rouge and she, um, there's an essay that tells this story, but she knew a little bit about what I was going through. And so I drove to her house and I moved in with her and um, I commuted back and forth to Hammond to on Tuesdays and Thursdays to finish my classes. And I never really, that kind of drug use I never returned to. I just looked away from it. I mean, I, I knew I had bruises, all little pinpricks of bruises on my arms. And um, I, I knew that if I didn't stop, I, I was probably gonna die. 
So my son, the day that he died, um, he uh, was working for Amazon. I always think about him. I think about him all the time, but especially this time of year because he was working for Amazon. He was one of the ones that would have um, packed up your package when you ordered it and gotten it on the shelf. And uh, he uh, apparently had hurt his back and he was in pain. And he was—he had just gotten out of rehab a few months earlier. And um, for whatever reason, that he called in sick that morning to Amazon and he drove, he lived in Dallas, Texas, and he drove 50 miles to a small town outside of Dallas where a friend of his lived who was um, a musician that he, he made music with, but also a dealer. It was his dealer. And um, he, he wound up, uh, you know, doing drugs there, shooting up heroin and, and dying at three o'clock in the afternoon. And so the essay, um, I, I think about those 250 miles, you know, I think about my 50 miles where I drove to, to what would become a recovery and his 50 miles where he drove to his death. And I, I wonder, because all you can do really when you're trying to understand someone is wonder, you can't, you can't really know. But I wonder, you know, what did he listen to on the way there? PBS was his favorite station. You know, what, what was he thinking? Was he, plan he was surely planning this. Was he planning to die? Was he just planning to give it all up? Or was it just he was going to take a day off and do this and go back to work? And so, you know, the 50 miles is also a kind of metaphor for just the different journeys that we take. And the one that I took and the one that, that he took. And, um, you know, uh, so I, I, in, in the essay, um, I, I tell both of those stories and I don't really have an answer about, about that, but I think it's, I think it's, it's good to think about the different journeys that people take and, and, uh, you know, wonder what your own journey will be like. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's where the title comes from. Actual 50 miles on both of our parts, but, um, but also 50 miles is a kind of metaphor mm -hmm. for journey. And you, there's, there's a part of that, that one essay, I believe, um, that you, you just alluded to a little bit where you talk about how it was or may have been very foggy that morning when Gray was driving and you talk about how uh, fog doesn't respond to light the same way darkness does. And if you shine light on fog, you just see even more fog and how, how uh, extensive it is. Um, and I, I think that that was such a powerful and really beautiful metaphor for trying to understand um, addiction and decisions that people make when they're in the throes of these substance use disorders. Yeah, it was. It was like the foggiest it had ever been in Dallas. I, I had to look this up afterwards because I wasn't in Dallas, but it was so foggy, all the planes were grounded and, you know, just sort of thinking about what could have driven him to drive in such a deep fog to a friend who he knew was, was bad for him. And he, he had told me that himself. And yeah, that I, I thinking about that, I, I think about the fog that is in all of us and the sometimes when we try to put our analytical brains on something, it's like that light in, a, in you know, in, in the fogs. It's, it doesn't reveal it. Maybe we need to bring other things to it. And I, I quote someone, um, I forget his name right now. Um, oh, I forget. Uh, it's, it's in the book though. But, but he said that, um, sometimes literature and art and music and philosophy are better tools to use to 
connect with um, addiction, you know, to try to understand it or maybe not understand it, but approach it. And um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes analysis is not enough. It's, it's, it's one tool, but it's not the only tool that we have. Yeah, that, that neuroscience can't, well, neuroscience can maybe explain the chemistry behind it, but it, it can't, that, that, that's the extent that it can do, right? And, yeah. and like you were saying, the, the arts and, and humanities can do so much more. Yes. Um, try to, I don't want to say shed light, but maybe try to find pathways through the fog. Yeah, I mean, and if you've ever had someone in your life who is seriously, um, dangerously a substance abuser, and you try to talk logic to them, doesn't work, you know. I mean, I have someone in my another family member in my life right now, and, and you know, logic does not work. Um, people say that when you reach your bottom, that that's something, and, and maybe that's true in some some cases. Um, it's sometimes it's, it feels like it's just a uh, meeting the right person who they will listen to, and sometimes that's not family members, you know. Mm-hmm. It might be. That's why some sometimes people like um, um, Eric Clapton, for example, who my son really admired, but uh, you know who had come James Taylor. I mean, it's some, some people who you admire, who you see have you know come through this. Sometimes that's that's really helpful. I know I for me I have a, a couple of friends who are sober a long, long time. I mean, we're talking forty years, oh, wow, and years and. Uh, they are the most spiritually alive people that I know, you know. Um, I, I think I, I mentioned this in the book that, that Carl Jung said that, um, uh, you know, alcoholics are the most spiritual people in the world because they went looking for spirit with a big S and they got distracted by spirit with a small S. Mm-hmm. And, and I, like, I like to think about that because pe- when you go through it, and you know this if you're going through it now, it takes everything that you have to stay sober. I mean, it's, not, it's something that knowing my son at some point, I just didn't think it was ever going to happen for him because it's, it's like every day, at least initially, you know, you are every day you wake up, that is the thing you have to focus on. And eventually it gets easier. I have to say it will, it will get easier, but, but you have to have the determination um, of every day to say, this is the one thing that I cannot do. And mm-hmm. you have to have something to replace it with, you know, in, in my case, in, I did a lot of arts and crafts and writing, and that was really, really helpful. And then I, I talk about this in the book. I started a program called words without walls, where we, we went into graduate students in creative writing with, with other professors and myself would go into jails and prisons and rehab facilities and teach creative writing. And my favorite place to go was a, um, was a rehab facility for women who are mothers. And um, I did that for 10 years. And that was really, really helpful to be around people who were struggling and trying really, really hard to be sober. And in the case of mothers, it was like triply important for them because they were not going to get their kids. You know, they were not going to be able to see their kids if they didn't get, get sober. And, and some of them, some of them died. Some of them, it didn't work. And, and, and some of them it did, but I became friends with them and, and just helping them helped me, you know, and, and listening to their poems and stories that they were writing of their struggle 
I felt really honored and, and kind of blessed really to, to be part of that and to, to hear it from them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so there are just, you just have to be really inventive in terms of things that, that you can do to, and for my son, he was a musician. He was an electronic musician. And that was hard. He, he, he told me at one point that, um, that that was part of the problem, that the drugs went hand in hand with the music, you know, and it was often meth for him. The heroin was a surprise because that was not a drug that he initially was, was attracted to at all. It was mm-hmm. always, a, always a, an upper. Mm-hmm. And um, so he would, he would be a, a DJ, you know, and or a musician, you know, until five o'clock in the morning or something. But how do you stay up that long? You, you take, you take drugs. Yeah. You know? And it's an excuse, of course. But if that's your life, if all your life, you know, that's what he wanted to be, a musician. He wanted mm-hmm. to be this kind of musician. And then all of a sudden you tell him, you can't do that. You can't really do that anymore because you can't hang out with the same people. That's, it's hard, you know, yeah. it's, it's not impossible, but, but it's, it's not easy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting that you should mention that, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Cause I was uh, rereading parts of the book this morning in preparation for this today. I, I had this thought that maybe I'm ready now to start um, addressing this in my own life um, in terms of like finding ways to help folks out. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> I was, kind of like kicking around ideas for um like workshops i could possibly do like i i, I had mentioned to you in the email i'm developing a, a course on um drugs and alcohol for my university um and just kind of figuring out like what what is the way i want to approach this um and it is really like terrifying you know, you know to be honest it's it's really scary um but I, I completely agree with you. I see like part of my own healing is kind of tied up in, in finding ways to, you know, big or small to try to like help. Yeah. And let me tell you, it, when you teach this course, you're going to find it so rewarding. You'll be scared, you'll be terrified, but at the end of it, you're going to say, I want to do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> If, if you, you know, for, I, I, I taught, I, I taught a course like that um, several times and, and then also just sort of worked it into the, the workshops that I did uh, for Words Without Walls. And we, we did um, an anthology of my co-leader and I of, of poems and stories and essays, all that have to do with addiction, violence, things mm-hmm. like that, things that, that would be the language of someone in jail or prison or, or rehab. And the, um, we didn't pull any punches. I mean, I think mm-hmm. sometimes people, uh, the, the pieces that we published and the pieces that we read in, in the class were ones that were, whoa, I mean, they were difficult to read. Uh, and they were honest, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like, you must stop drinking, you know, yeah. it was like, this is what it, I feel good when this happens, you know, yeah. and then I, I screwed up and now I don't know my kids or whatever, you know, but it, but there were, there weren't moralistic pieces, you know, I mean, um, there's a piece, um, oh, I'm not gonna remember his name. anyway, there, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, famous writers who, who have struggled with substance abuse and who've written mm-hmm. about it. And, 
that's a, a really, really valuable thing. <coughs> we had, um, we had Mary Carr come to the jail and um, she, uh, she had just written uh, lit. I don't know if you know that it's, a, it's about her life as, as an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny what, what people notice. She came in and she had just gotten engaged. She had this big fat diamond ring on her, you know, and she talked about getting like, I don't know, mega bucks for the book, you know, and, and after she left, everybody was like, you know, the incarcerated guys are like, did you see that ring? <laughs> Could I get money? Could, would people be interested in hearing about my story? And I'm like, I don't know about the money, but you know what? You would be really surprised at what people are interested to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you got to, I, I was always about trying to find ways to inspire um, people to see how other people have done it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, it just, it's, it's, I keep saying it's hard. It, it is hard. Um, yeah, it is. It is the hardest thing <laughs> that I've ever done. Well, by you, far. You know, I always tell my students when we went into these places to teach, I said, you are not a counselor. You are not a, a drug therapist. You are a writing teacher. And that's what you're going in there to do. You're going in there to help them tell their stories or write their poems about this specific experience, but realize that, you know, that that may not wind up helping them, but it will, it will do some good and maybe it'll be fantastic good. And, and we've seen that happen with a lot of people. With the, in some people, for some people, <clears throat> You know, for some people, it's just they, they, they're doing really great in recovery and they make one little fall. And this is, I think, what happened in the case of my son. He hadn't done any drugs in so long that his body was uh, just not, not used, to, used to it. And I, I think that it was a mistake that yeah. he didn't mean to overdose and and I think I've seen that happen with several of the women that I work with. That they just mm-hmm. they go out and they think, oh, this is I'm, I'm clean, but I'm just going to do this one time and that one time. And especially you now with fentanyl, it's just um, really scary. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> this is a, a hard turn, but I, I don't want to take up more of your time. Um, I was I while I have you here though, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your writing process because I, I think that's always um, as I've been talking to. You, <clears throat> other writers and especially other other folks who have written um, and published with Etruscan. Um, I think it's just so fascinating and, and insightful and educational, really, to to hear how people approach their projects. So I was wondering if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about what your process is like. Sure. Um, I, I'm not a happy, I mean, I don't write about happy things. <laughs> that doesn't mean that my works are all depressing. I hope that there is there is hope in all of them, but I think it's important to, to investigate the shadow side. And so usually when I start writing, whether it's an essay or a poem, it's um, because there's something dark that is, I don't understand, uh, or that is, it's bothering me, you know? And um, so before, when my, right after my son died, I wrote a book of poems and uh, because I didn't, I, I just couldn't figure out how to structure any kind of narrative. And um, the poems just 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 uh, 
you know, I've been writing poems for like 50 years. So they, I can't say that there's a process. I sit in my bed and I write in a journal and usually either, either the poems or the essays will be, have their first life as a handwritten um, entry in a journal and the journal sh- it's like, um, I don't have to have rotten apples or anything, but I have to have a handmade paper and I use a fountain pen because it feels, even though I usually get ink all over the place, it feels like it gives me a physical connection to what I'm writing. Even though the second draft is almost always on the computer, I don't like to start on the computer because I feel already a, a separation between what mm-hmm. I feel in my body and it feels a little too intellectual. And even though all through the years I've set up desks and I've had offices and all that, I always write in my bed, with, you know. And I think that also is, I, in my as an early writer, I was very physical. I mean, I wrote about sex and plums and eating and all the all this stuff. And so I've always been someone really uh, who found imagery related to the physical world to be important. And so just to be in my bed and in that safe, intimate space, that's, that's where I write. And um, so the essays in this book, some of which are actually poems. There are some poems, prose poems in the book. Mm-hmm. A couple of them I wrote before Gray died. And there were, I could see that he was on a really bad uh, track. It was like mm-hmm. a, a train that you... You see it coming, you hear the whistle, you cannot do anything to stop it. And um, so those essays, I wanted to write essays because I felt like the culture was more culpable um, than than people have have in different ways. And I mentioned already the ADHD thing, but that's hard to do in a poem. So so I wanted to write um, that essay. And so I, I start out, if it's an essay that, that like that, like um, do no do no harm um, is that essay. Uh, I do research. I start with research, and um, I find quotes that uh, that sort of echo something I'm already thinking. Um, if if I'm if I'm really going to um, rely on what somebody said, I want to make sure that I get it right. Um, so I start with the research, but at a certain point, I stop because I think you can if you just have too much research and it's a never ending thing. And then you lose your own vision. So I do some research and then I put that aside and I don't even look at it. And then I, I just, uh, I start telling a story, you know, and um, I'll sometimes interrupt myself and I'm very aware that I'm not a fiction writer. And uh, I, I don't believe that, there's like one place that you can go to in a story. So I will often stop and they'll, and, and I'll sort of, it's, it's almost like a, a meditation on something. There'll be an image or a metaphor or something that in, in a, another situation might be a poem, but I'll, I'll stop the narrative and I'll have it there. And then I'll, and then I'll move on. So a lot of, a lot of the pieces that have narrative in them, I would call them interrupted narratives. And, and that's why the whole book is a kind of, it's not a chapter by chapter thing, but they're pieces because I think that that's the most honest way to tell a story about a life. Um, you know, it's, it's not, I could say to you, for example, for most of my life, I had, I had trouble with men, you know, so 
oh, maybe maybe I would write a story that said, okay, uh, this relationship failed, this one failed, this one failed, this one, oh, well, I'm, I'm a terrible person or whatever. I can't, never going to have. But, but every relationship I had, I learned something from. And I, even if it was as silly as, I learned a lot about music from this one musician I dated, you know, whatever. So there's other ways I could tell a story just about that musician and just about what I learned from that. And then I could go on. I don't have to. So I, I, I don't like, uh, so I already know when I sit down to write that I'm not going to tell a regular kind of a story. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt it. And, um, and then sometimes, uh, there are just anecdotes. There are things that happen. There's a, there's a little piece in there about me cooking puttanesca, which is a dish that my son liked a lot. And, you know, after he died, I, I kept thinking, oh, maybe he'll, people say, you know, people that meant a lot to you, they die, they come to you. And he never came to me. And he never, you know, the truth is I had to call him and text him more than he texted me. He was a young man. That's the way young men are sometimes. But, you know, I was cooking this puttanesca and smelling it, the garlic and the anchovies and the tomatoes. And all of a sudden he was just right there next to me. And he was saying, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry. And I just didn't even recognize it or acknowledge it because he couldn't be there. He's dead, you know? And, and then at some point I was like, I realized that something, something was there. And so I said, I, I hear you, you know? And so I, I didn't know what to do with that. That was just an experience that I had. Um, but, but I thought it was important, you know, and it wasn't, uh, I don't always know when I first start writing something, if it's going to be long or short. And sometimes I, I write too long and then I just cut, 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 cut. I try to get, I try to make essays that are, are like poems, but, but a little bit longer. Um, so anyway, so, so, yeah, that I tried to I try to make the reader smell what I was smelling and feel what I was feeling, and then I don't want it to go on too long um, because they're not me after all, you know. And uh, I just want to stop it at a, at a point where I feel like it would be most meaningful for them. So, so there is a lot of editing that goes on, but I I, I always tell my students, and I feel this way myself that. You have to almost be schizophrenic to be a writer. You have to just go into it and write with all your heart and soul and as, as corny as that might sound and, and leave the critic aside because if the critic's telling you don't write that, don't do this, that, that's not a good thing. You don't even worry about spelling or anything. You just write it and then you come back with this other head of a critic on. And I used to, I, I sometimes felt like I had my son I imagined him as a little Grinch sitting on my shoulder. Mom, you are not really going to say that, are you? <laughs> and, uh, oh, no, 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 you can't. Because I wanted him to be part of this process in any way possible. I, I, I always was thinking as I was writing this book, what would he think of this if he were alive? You know, and, and so it's a, it's a, it, it's, that's sort of what the process is. It's a conversation with myself and, I think it's so important to be honest when you're writing. And obviously there's all kinds of techniques you have to know. You have to understand imagery. You have to understand uh, how, to, how to render a conversation in an interesting way and all of that. But if you're not saying a truth, then why are you writing? You know, if you're not. And I, I also think, you know, I, I think a lot about 
um, uh, what Kafka said, that great literature should be like an axe to break the frozen sea within you. Mm -hmm. And if you're not breaking something in me with your writing, I mean, I don't want to just write, read the same thing over yeah. and over again. So I'm, all, I'm in my mind as I'm writing, I'm thinking about this because when we tend to tell stories about ourselves, we tend to make ourselves into a cliche often. Mm -hmm. We tend to, you know, go to the place that everybody goes to. And so it's finding that element of strangeness that is also a truth at the end that I think is real important. So that's a lot, but there are just a lot of things running through my head as I write. No, it's all, it's all brilliant. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned the, the piece about um, cooking because reading that, and then I, I also reread um, the essay where you were talking about the Afghan <clears throat> that you made. And, and you were obviously a very, um, very creative person. And I, I like both of those pieces as kind of companions to each other, right? Because you are, you're talking about the process of creating that thing, but then also what your thoughts are and your relationship is with Gray at that moment in time. And then like reading those and then looking at the book and, and seeing it now also as like this labor of love from you um, really, I think made it the, I mean the whole, the whole thing like so much more powerful. Um, so I, I, I did, I do want to say this is my chance to like, like dork out a little bit but it's my show and my job so i'm allowed to like that was incredible like i, I i'm working from home today and my my oldest daughter is home because it's parent teacher conference day and she's watching tv and i'm reading this book and trying not to cry <laughs> and then and then going to hug her and i'm going to go upstairs and hug her again after i get off this call um it's just so such an incredible book so thank you thank you so much for um, having having the courage to to put your story out there. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Uh, there's no other way I could wrap up this conversation than that. So I will I will stop it there. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. For more on tenure tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.